We're in the book of James, and we're going to start this morning by looking at, uh, we did a little intro last week, I'm not going to repeat all that. Basically, we're going to take the approach that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Most scholars believe that it's that James that wrote this book. He was the head elder, the bishop, if you will, of Jerusalem during the time right after Jesus' ascension and uh, led the Jerusalem church. We kind of think Peter was the head of the Jerusalem church, but he really wasn't. They ruled as we do in a, in a, in a presbytery, a presbyt- as presbyters. In fact, the Bible calls them presbyters. James was probably the first book written of the New Testament. Now, some scholars don't agree, but many do. Many think he was the first to write a book and that he was writing expressly to Jewish Christians that had been dispersed after the persecution of Stephen, chapter 7, chapter 8 of Acts, and uh, the persecution that followed, and believers were scattered, but also to the diaspora. These are people that were carried away uh, in captivity uh, long before that, hundreds of years before that, with the first uh, exile of uh, the northern ten tribes in Israel, And then later, the uh, two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, were carried away into Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, all scattered all over creation. Many of them were still living there. And uh, these were the people that many of the New Testament authors were writing to. James is a unique book. There's not another one in the New Testament like it. It's as unique as the book of Revelation. James is not to be compared with Paul's writings. It is an epistle but it's an epistle of a certain kind. It has a certain flavor to it. And that flavor is early, even pre-New Testament Judaism. And it's what uh, some scholars call an encyclical, it's a, it's a letter, perinesis, which means it is full of just these loosely connected aphorisms, proverbs. They're, they're connected, but they're not tightly connected. They're loosely connected. And so it can be a little disconcerting reading the book of James. You go, oh my gosh, there's all just, they don't seem like there's any tra- train of thought. And there isn't. And if you embrace it as that, and, and some scholars call James the Proverbs of the New Testament, and it is. And James is simply doing this. He's writing to Christians, not to non-believers. And he's telling them, here's how you're going to live out your faith during the already not yet, the time between the first and second coming of Jesus. There's going to be this time, we talked about it in Sunday school, Jen Wilkins is going to talk about it in the women's Bible study. Any good New Testament scholar is going to tell you the church is living in tension between us and the world. It just is. That's the way it is. And the sooner that you embrace that tension and and Step into it, not begrudgingly or say, oh, you know, I wish it was different. No, no, this is by design. God wants us there. He wants us in this tension. He doesn't want us uh, to, to be torn to pieces. He wants unity, but He wants us to live in the tension of His first and second coming. We are in the world, but we're not of the world, and so on. So it's impossible And I've said this for all the years I've been here, folks, and I hope you will take it serious. It's impossible to even understand Christianity, much less live out your faith, unless you embrace deeply this idea of the already, not yet, that 
there's a biblical and theological underpinning to tension to trials and the suffering that sometimes accompanies trials. Uh, Every trial is not accompanied by suffering, but very often there's deep suffering. James goes head on, and I'll tell you, it is disturbing. You will not like the first sentence of the book of James. So let's read it and just get it over with now. It's printed in your bulletin, James chapter 1. Let's dive right in. And uh, on the other hand, if you listen to what I'm going to tell you, I think some of you can be set free from a lot of anxiety and maybe even some deep-seated pain that has afflicted you. Now hear God's word. We're just going to read the first few verses. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. But let Him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed and driven by the wind. For that person must suppose that he will receive nothing from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now jump down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Without a theology of suffering, without a theology of trials, you are going to be in bad shape being a Christian. Because there's just no way to get around it that this world is fallen and there's some bad things that happen. Some things happen for a reason. Some things just happen because they're just bad. And no matter how hard you try, you're simply not going to find a reason. And if you start analyzing, oh, is this a trial? Am I supposed to be, have patience? Am I supposed to do this and that? You are going to lose your ever-loving mind. And so I'm telling you right now, don't try to interpret God's providence. That's nothing but Christian witchcraft. To try to read the tea leaves of your life and figure out what is going on. You can ask why. You can dislike what's going on. You can lament and grieve and suffer. But if you turn away from Jesus Christ, you will become shipwrecked. And I've seen it. I have done it in my own life. And I'm here to tell you, it is no fun. And so listen carefully to these wise wisdom words that James puts before us. You see the context from the very first, look at verse 1, to the believers in the diaspora. You are living in the wilderness. We are living in the already, not yet. We are living in a time of tension. Jesus went away. He said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And He said, then I'm going to come back and see what you have done with my, with my property, with my house. See if you've done anything good with it. Have you planted? Have you grown? Have you nurtured? Have you cared for the world, the planet, people in the planet, the institutions in the planet, everything? Are my people salt and light in this world? Will you do it? Will you follow me and trust me? You're in the diaspora. And there's going to be trials 
of various kinds. So he's saying it's not going to be one kind of trial. You know what the, the Christians in, uh, in Syria, what, and that's where my family's from, very few of them left. They've, millions have fled these past five years. And so they're, they're, the Christian community in the Middle East, that little section of the Middle East, is denuded to the point where there's very few left. First time in 2,000 years. Gone. Some murdered, some in Europe, some here and elsewhere. Not the first time this has happened. You all have family histories. You know you weren't, unless you're a Native American and even they came from Russia, uh, we don't know where we're from. So everybody's from somewhere because of these things that happen in the world, these diasporas. And this is one of them. And that's the context. And Christians need to understand this. You need to understand this. Otherwise, we can start driving the anchors of our heart down into sandy ground that is going to betray us at some point. Maybe not even in your lifetime, but certainly your children. Maybe not theirs, but your grandchildren. Somewhere along the line, this world and the institutions in this world and other people are going to fail you. Are you married? You have a spouse? You know what failure is, especially us men. We know what it is. That was funny, you all. I was trying to make fun of the ladies. Okay, never mind. I can tell right now this is not going to go well. Rick doesn't like my jokes. Scott told me he doesn't like my jokes. Does anyone like my jokes? Obviously not. Obviously not. <laughs> okay. All right, let's just plow ahead. Let's stay with the Bible. Okay. So James is just restating. He is saying... In fact, I have, uh, in some of my commentaries, I have these marvelous charts where James is almost completely replaying the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Proverbs, which Jesus taught, and the teachings of Old Testament, which, which Jesus taught. So it's, James is not coming up with anything new. He's just reminding us of what it is to be a Christian in this world and to have our hearts longing for the return of the great King, but He's not come yet. And will you stay? Will you persevere under trial? So we're going to talk about very quickly three things. And uh, uh, because failing to do this, I'm telling you, it'll make you shipwreck. Oh, you'll be fine because you live in America. You're still going to have plenty to eat and you'll do fine. And, you know, you can go to your therapist and take drugs. I do uh, for depression. And so you can go do all of that. That's all fine and good. Nothing wrong with that. But down deep inside your soul... Something will be missing if you don't embrace this and take it in. This is what we need to get us all the way to the finish line. To, like the Super Bowl commercial, that was my favorite one was the little boy running. Uh, take it to the house. Is that what he said? Take it to the house. And the minute he said it, I thought, man, that's us. He gave us a ball. Let's take it to the house. Let's go. But we want to sit around and wring our hands and cry and complain, and I'm going to tell you that's not okay. So, gird your loins, my friends. Here we go. You've got to know three things. We're going to talk about these today and, and maybe a little bit next week. Trials and the inner voice. Trials and the inner voice. Secondly, trials and wisdom. And thirdly, trials and the cross of life because James just comes right out of the gate and he says do something that is completely counterintuitive count it all joy 
and we read those verses and we totally misconstrue them. We, we make them crazy. We put them into Christianese and that's not okay. I'm going to tell you the right way to look at it and what the literal language is saying and why it is doable without being fake. How can you count it all joy? It's the Greek word hegeomai, hegeomai, hegeomai. It means to consider, to think deeply, to take whatever's happening to you and like an accountant, put it in the right column for goodness sakes. Otherwise, you're going to come out with a total down here that's wrong. Assign what is happening to you to the right place. Do this first. James doesn't preface it. He doesn't say anything. He just says, when it happens, count it. Put it somewhere. Do something with it. And here's what you're to do. Count it all joy. He's not asking you to fake. He's not asking you to put a happy smile when everything's going bad. In fact, you may be deeply sad. You may be lamenting at great degrees. You may be brokenhearted and grieving. But he said, when it happens... Think about it, consider it, and put it where it belongs or it will destroy you. Count it all joy. In the the ESV it says brothers, but it's a Delphoi, which is a, a generic for brothers and sisters. So he's not just talking to men. When you meet trials of various kinds, they're going to come at you from every kind. It's going to be everything from losing a child to getting a dread disease. To how many chocolate chip cookies should I have before I stop? Everything in your life can be a trial. And some of them are trite, like the chocolate chip cookies. But lose a child. Lose a marriage. Lose your business. Lose your health. And deep suffering can come along. It can hurt you. And hurt you deeply. And He doesn't want you to put on the Christian mask and the Christian face. How's it going? Oh, better than I deserve. How many times have you said that? Don't say it. It's bumper sticker theology. Tell us the truth, darn it. Yes? Somebody please say yes. I'm feeling very insecure right now. I don't want to be talking to myself. Be honest for goodness sakes. No, things are not going well. But can you do that in church? Uh Uh-uh. Because we're supposed to count it all joy. And what we read is not count it all joy, be joyful. And that is not what it's saying. It's saying that internally, this inner voice during trials, you're supposed to do something with that. You're not just supposed to let it roll over you like a a wave. You're supposed to resist it and step up and do something about it because it's your life and everybody's life around you that will suffer if you don't count it all joy and do something with it instead of just letting it take you wherever it wants to. To take you. And James says right out of the gate, no. He doesn't preface nothing. It's so st- I mean, it just jumps out at you. And in fact, that's what all of James is about. He is abrupt, he is tough, he is hard. He's like a coach coaching his team and telling him, too bad, your arm's broken, you get back out there and play. That was pretty funny. I don't know what's wrong with you people. All right. Trials are certain, but how you respond is not. The trials are certain, how you respond is not. And he's giving us the Christian paradigm, the Christian pattern. 
you're going to have, when a trial comes, you're going to have a certain degree of fear and doubt. And during that moment of trial, if suffering, if it is accompanied by suffering, and it can be, you will move from fear and doubt. What's happening? Why is this happening? I don't know what's going on. What's going on? That this dis- discombobulation that occurs, and it, everyone's experienced it some, to some degree, great degree, some minor. But whatever it was, there's this moment of fear, a moment of doubt. Why is this happening? Then it can move into bitter lament and grief and sorrow and pain. Okay, that's good. The Bible is full of that. The Psalms are all about that. Then, listen to me. I'm begging you. At that moment, if you don't consider it joy, you're going to either go neutral or you're going to do something else. And here's what you'll do. Anger. Cynicism. The doubt and the fear and the lament and the sorrow. All good, all healthy, nothing wrong. But you're not going to count it joy. No, I'm going to be mad. I'm going to be really mad. I'm going to be mad at everybody and everything. And I'm just going to let these waves and these winds carry me wherever they want to go. And I'll tell you, I could, I could make your hair curl if I let you know where it took me and my wife for 10 years. You don't want to go there. Some of you have gone there and you're back and you're here today and thank God for that. And some of you need to go there and suffer a little bit so that you will come back and start to love Jesus again and count it all joy that this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief for the joy that was set before him shamed the cross, stood right up in its face and said, I will be shamed so that they don't ever have to be. And yet Christians, I'll tell you what, we got to grow a backbone, folks. Amen? Grow a backbone. And quit the whining and complaining. Fear and doubt can turn into anger, cynicism, sarcasm, mockery. And we're all guilty of that. I'll tell you, that's at my foot. And I'm repenting of it and have been since for the past five years. Well, I've been reading Proverbs every day. And this has got me. It's got me hard. Or you can have fear, doubt, Bitter lament. You can ask all the questions why. You can have all the pain and all that. But you reject the root of bitterness. You say, no, no matter what's happened to me, I'm going to count it all joy. I'm going to step up in the face of this terrible, dark providence that has come into my life. I don't know why. But I'm going to shake my fist at it. And not my Redeemer, who is the only hope to make whatever horrific thing happened to me, to turn that wrong, that injustice, that horrible thing into something right. Do you see that? He is saying, do not give in. Don't let it carry you away because you will be shipwrecked. And he's like a coach. He's, he's just jamming it at us and saying, don't do it. No fluffy nothing. He just... Rejoice in the trial, not for the trial. I don't want trial. Do any of you want trials? Nobody raise your hand because we're going to have to get you a doctor. No, we don't want trials. And that's okay. Jesus Himself, for goodness sakes, folks. Read your Bible. Jesus prayed not to have the trial of the cross. Father, if it's possible, remove from me this trial. 
We don't pray, we're not happy about the trial, but by golly, you, you can rejoice in it. You can let the power of joy carry you in it. Not happy, clappy, oh, nothing's wrong, and put this... No, deep, powerful current of joy that cannot be taken away from you if you don't let it. And you may, on the outside, you may still be devastated and broken. And church is the place where you should be able to come and break. And we gather around you, whatever it is, and we love on you and care for you because we see ourselves in you. And until church becomes that, folks, we're nothing but another lobby group in the country with our cardboard signs and our complaints. And we could be so much more. We could be salt and light. Imagine that. Rejoicing in the trial, not for the trial. Listen to this. This is from Courtney Doctor. Ladies, you know who I'm talking about. It is extremely difficult. Listen, this woman is brilliant. I want to be her, only I want to stay a man. Okay. It is extremely difficult to change the way we feel about something. We don't want to change somebody's feelings. It's okay to feel bad about suffering and trial. That's all right. It's extremely difficult to change the way we feel about something, so it is very encouraging that James does not tell us to feel joyful when you meet trials of various kinds. He didn't say feel joyful. That's what we read. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he tells us, count it all joy. Take it. Get it by the shirt and bring it up close. The trial, the suffering, the pain. Bring it up close. Kiss it on the lips and put it where it belongs. Under the cross of Jesus. Then go on and cry and weep your eyes out because you have a Savior now that's not trying to change your feelings. He just wants you to experience in the trial, in the suffering, Him. And folks, we got to do this. we got to do this in our churches. And even in the small community of Christ the King, we can do it. I don't care what they do elsewhere. But what happens here is our business, our responsibility, and we can change, and you can change. Joy, trials, trouble, suffering, these are a paradox. The Scripture does not blink. It doesn't move away. It goes head on into them. James does it in the very first verse. Look at 3 and 4. He says, you know something. You're, you're, you're supposed to know something. You know that trials will, if you let them, and he says that, if you will let them have their complete work in you, you can actually move to a place where you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, who doesn't want that? That doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean you won't have pain. But what he is saying is you will become perfect. Now, the word perfect doesn't mean morally perfect. It means mature. That you will actually grow thereby. And it's, it's so sad to see a Christian get wounded and hurt and not grow. They become stunted in their pain. And they're never growing. They just say they're there in the agony. And some people think that's a virtue. Well, I don't know. I've been in that kind of agony before. And I can tell you it's not a virtue. It sucks. 
Yes? It's awful. It's the worst thing in the world. It doesn't feel good. There's nothing good about it. Okay. You know the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness or perseverance. Let it have its effect on you. Count it joy and then let it have its effect. You know these things, now do it. Not change how you feel, but change what you do and how you count, how you think. The very nature of faith. Look, folks, every faith, doesn't matter if it's Christian or any other kind, every faith, by definition, means it will be tested, that it will come up against obstacles because that's what it is. You can't prove it. So you're going to have to stand. And the definition of faith is crucial. If you think, and I have said this so many times, but I'm going to say it again, if you have an idea that faith is something you have, that faith is a force in you, and that you're to take your faith and then take it out there and do stuff with it, you're going to miss the whole message of the Bible, the entire Bible. Faith is not about you. Faith is about the faithful one. What is the object of your faith? Put your faith in the right object and you can put the tiniest amount of faith and it will, it will move mountains, Jesus said. You can say to the mountain, move, and it will move. Have faith as a mustard seed. Hey, you don't need much. Put it in the right thing, invest it in the right person, and it can move mountains. The definition of faith is crucial. Faith in faith or faith in Jesus. Faith in the God who knows you and who knows your sorrow and knows your pain and actually experienced it as well. Listen to this. Doubt, and I hope you, I don't know, I'm just begging you. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Do you hear what I said? Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Cynicism is the enemy of faith. Cynicism is the enemy of faith. Listen to this. Cynicism, sarcasm, is not mockery, is not neutral or agnostic. It's crass, a negation of faith, a denial of God's very nature of goodness, grace, kindness, and love. Cynicism is active, positive, energetic rejection of God and who He is. It is not authentic. It's not being realistic. It's not being honest. It's not being intelligent. It's not being sophisticated. It's not being pragmatic. It's not being clever like Jerry Seinfeld. You know, that if those of you that remember Jerry Seinfeld, that was all their show was about. Mockery and cynicism. And I love Jerry Seinfeld. Funny, keep it on TV. Don't bring it into your life. Laugh at it. But when you become that, you're going down. You'll never make it to the house. It's foolish. It's not those things. It's not in clever. It's not being authentic, not being transparent to, to be cynical about everything and criticize everything. Do you know what that means when you're cynical and critical and everything is like that? And you've got to do it just like that. What you're doing is you're displaying your superiority. You're saying, I know. I have complete knowledge. And you know what we know? 
We know beans from apple butter. Can you uh, agree with that, folks? We don't know beans. All right. It's foolish. Listen, it's petulant. It's like a child stamping their foot, saying, I'm just going to be mad about this. It's immature. It's childish. It's toxic, destructive. I've engaged in it. It brought me down. I've reaped a whirlwind. But I'm talking my, my personal life. Mahdi V will tell you the same. Whatever you think you have a right to be angry about, bitter, you think that's bad? You think what the worst, think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. You think that's bad? Lose Jesus Christ. Lose your God and King. Lose Him. And then try to figure out what you're going to do with the mess of the suffering that you're suffering. Do you hear what I'm saying? Lose Him, and what are you going to do about that? It's just going to take you down. But if you have Him, you listen to me, if you have Jesus in your life, then let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. My God's Word establishes and is still the truth. Yes? That's what it is. Let it all go. Nothing in my hand. I will hold nothing in my hand. I will bring nothing to my Savior. I will come naked and broken and wounded and sore looking to Him for rest. And He'll give me rest. And that suffering, I'll suffer my whole rest of my life. I know I will. There's things in my life I can't undo. That suffering's going to go on forever. But I'm going to count it all joy because I'm not going to let the devil win. No. No. A thousand times no. Count. So quickly. Trials and wisdom. Look at 5 through 8. He's talking about wisdom. How are you going to do It's easy for me to get up here and, and get excited and put, you know, make all these demands because I'm the big pastor and all this stuff. Uh, no, Listen. To get through this, you're going to need wisdom. And so he says, the first thing you do, count it all joy. Remember, remember the gospel. Plug that in. Then pray that God will give you wisdom. In other words, ask for understanding and discernment and wise uh, way of thinking about things so that you can start to deal with all of the, uh, the shrapnel that comes from a trial and sometimes the suffering that accompanies it. Because any of you that have been really deeply hurt or wounded or suffering under maybe an extreme trial, you know that when it goes off, it's like a grenade. The shrapnel goes everywhere. Your kids will suffer. Your spouse will suffer. Your co-workers will suffer. Your church will suffer. Everybody will suffer. No one is in isolation. No No matter how hard you try, you can't isolate yourself because somebody out there cares about you and is worried about you. So you're going to need wisdom. Wisdom keeps us from the foolishness, primarily, lots of things, but wisdom will keep you from the foolishness of rejecting God and not going to God. And what does your pastor say almost every single week? Run to Jesus. Trust Him. Don't turn away from Him. Turning away from Him is a pit of darkness. Yeah, but you don't know what I've gone through. I don't. I don't even claim to know what you've gone through. 
But I know what he went through and so do you. Can you do something with that? Are you going to ignore that? Are you going to ignore the cross of Christ? To your apparel, to your detriment. Forget that. No, but when you remember it, everything changes. Run to Jesus. Run, run, run. Don't try to fix anything. Don't try to understand. Just count it joy and run. Do you hear me? Sermon's over. No, we've got to look at the trials of life and the crown of life. It's no mistake that within the first 12 verses, James dropped this bomb into his encyclical. He drops it like a bomb. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast in trial. Do you want to be blessed or do you want to be cursed? That's what he's saying. You're going to have trials. Do you want to be blessed in that or do you want to be cursed? Because you're going to get one or the other. There's no neutrality here. And he's saying, blessed is the man, blessed is the one whom remains steadfast in trial. They will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. How in the world do you and I ever take it to the house? How do we cross that threshold? How do we even take one step in the midst of suffering and trial when you're crushed to the ground and your heart's ripped to shreds and you know it's never going to be well again, that you're never going to be okay, you're never going to come back to the, to the wonderful body you had before you got this disease or your family's never going to be whole now that you've got a divorce or you've lost somebody, that it's not going to ever be well. How? How do you go there? How do you take that first step? The crown of life. The crown of life. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast. He will receive a crown of life, which God promised on the basis of what? I'm asking you, on the basis of what did God Almighty promise you and me? Nothing. Dust. From the earth, how did he ever come? The God who created all things come to promise a crown of life to us. Because he was sitting next to someone who was going to take that crown off and lay it at his father's feet and say, I'll go. I'll go into the trial. I'll go into the suffering. I'll go into hell for them. And I'll count it all Joy, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily clings. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated himself at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Consider him, consider him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you will not grow weary and faint. Will you trust him? Will you count it joy, run to Jesus, Throw that junk aside and say, no, I'm taking you. You will make this right. You will turn my weeping into dancing and singing. Maybe not in this life, but certainly 100% in the life to come. Will you trust Him?
I hope you will. Father, uh, please help us. Give us wisdom as we consider these things. There's There's nothing worse than going through a horrific trial and suffering and having our heart broken and our life ripped to shreds. We know that you know what that's like. And while we can't understand all that goes on in in those times, we know the one who does understand it. Please come and surround us with your arms of love. Help us. Heal our hearts. Save us. We pray these things in your Son's most holy name. Amen.